everyone, welcome to Third Spacing, the podcast where we explore important topics in the peripheries of clinical medicine in Singapore. This is your host, Anhui. In this episode, I talked to Dr. Muntasir, a hand surgeon from Sengkang General Hospital who volunteered and translated at farm worker dormitories during the COVID-19 pandemic. In our conversation, we discussed the doctor-patient relationship and how it is affected by language, even with a language barrier. He shared ways we can build our sense of empathy through finding positive role models through the tough training years, or humility to apologize when a mistake is made, and confronting our fear of the unknown. In this speech, you reassured foreign workers whose movements were limited in the dormitories that they were being taken care of and thank them for building the homes we live in, the roads we travel upon, and the hospitals we walk in. Behind that speech, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about who you are and why did you do that? Well, actually, like we had been going into the domes. We started on the solving program and everything. Now, the thing is, essentially, there's not too many people who speak Bengali. So we're doing sort of like a tag team, calling out to the people in the domes and actually speaking out about what's going on. So, so for the workers, first of all, a lot of them are actually from India and from Bangladesh, from China, from Myanmar, and a lot of them don't speak English. So imagine something like this is happening and then you're actually not being able to go out of your dorms and you're actually cooped up over there. You would be worried. You'd be really worried. You're not going to your workplaces and their lives are most of the time not very easy because it's dependent on the employer and about dependent on the work and they've got like families back home who are also suffering from this problem of the virus and everything. They may not be able to send their money back. They may not be able to go back also. So they're all worried. They are fearful because they are not understanding exactly what we are saying because the most of the time it's in English and the news which has been casted is also in English. So what we need to do is basically make them aware that this is what's happening and there's nothing to be worried about because there's help at hand. The doctors all around Singapore, the healthcare workers all around Singapore from all the hospitals who have actually joined hands and have come out and essentially the volunteering is increasing day by day just to take care of people. They're not abandoned. Basically, if you think about fear, fear can cause problems. It can cause unhappiness. It can cause anger. It can cause resentment. It can cause problems, actually. So it's better to be handled beforehand before it goes out of hand. So that's what we're doing over there. We're talking to them, telling them that we're here, physical presence, with the whole hospital supporting and the, I mean, the other hospitals supporting at the same time. We're there for their health. There's nothing to worry. Basically, if they fall sick, we can always take care of them. Nextly, what I think is when you actually speak with a person, you should make sure that they have their own self-esteem, feeling of self-worth. We need to tell them that they have done stuff. Thing, they do their work. We never see them doing the work and the buildings are out there. The roads are all maintained. We don't see them doing it, but it's there. It's there for us. I mean, the building I'm living in, the road they have actually paved, the cleaners, the trees which have been trimmed, it's been done them by them and it needs to be acknowledged. And if you think about it, if I'm in your position and you're in my position, if somebody comes up and acknowledges your work, that gives you an absolute moral uplifting. 
it makes you feel stronger. And if you have fears, that fears actually just goes off because you know that somebody is actually saying that you are worthy of what you have done. You have done great. Now it's our turn to give you something back. And that's what we are trying to do. And that's the truth of it all. And it's the loveliest possible thing that the whole of Singapore thinks the same, that it's time we gave something back to them. We care, care about our unhidden heroes who have been actually hiding, who have been actually been in the background doing stuff for us all the time long. So that's the thing. And lastly, when we said that we have done the stuff, you're one of us. I really meant it. Because everybody means that actually. I was thinking about what you said earlier about um, it brings out the best of us, but it also brings out the worst of us. It's quite scary that there's also like this xenophobic sentiment being surfaced at the same time. Well, to be very frank, as I said, situations like this actually makes people fearful. Mm. So when you are fearful, you have resentment, you try to strike out at something which seems logical to you. It may not be logical because possibly when you have fear and you're angry, you may not be thinking in the right way. And essentially, if you have a lack of information about why this transmitted, you possibly just might go around blaming somebody else. I spoke about people playing as one team. There's the other aspect about good leadership. Nobody knew exactly how it was spreading at that time and what exactly the implications was. And as I've said right now, that awareness, they were not aware because they won't be able to read up what we are reading. We're educated. We have got a bit of a chance of actually reading English and everything online. We should take into granted some of them don't read English also. And mm-hmm. well, that's the thing. I mean, we can't just go around blaming people for what they are not blamed for. Xenophobia is a problem. And even other times, actually, there was always an outcrop of xenophobia. People went around looking for small classes of people to blame because they didn't exactly know what to do. It's the fear which is working in us. We are all afraid. We really don't know what's going to happen. I think you also briefly, you briefly said that... Um you spoke in Bengali, but you had a colleague who spoke in Tamil. Yes. Um, I think the majority of doctors in Singapore, I mean, I can't speak, I can speak Malay, but I can't speak Tamil or Bengali. I was wondering, have you noticed how do they, how do they communicate with uh, workers given that they have this language barrier? Uh, for the ones who doesn't speak the language? Mm-hmm. It's sometimes a bit of a difficulty because the nuances and everything is a bit different. I'll, I'll share like a funny story with you. So when I was in Changi Orthopedics, there was a lot of like Bangladeshi workers used to come down. So they used to come down and say beta. Beta means pain. Right. So unfortunately, sometimes it was interpreted as beta. And they were discharged. <laughs> oh my. So one of my bosses over there told me, Muntasi, what's beta? I said, it's pain. And he was like, oh my God, I just discharged the patient. <laughs> So some funny things happen. I mean, like, there are a lot of funny things, actually, because the, unfortunately, amongst the medical fraternity, there's not too many people who speak Bengali, but there's a huge number of Bengali construction workers. The same goes for Tamil. There are, there are doctors, but not too many who speak Tamil also. And that can be a bit of a problem at times, actually. But yes, it's, it's better with the Tamil-speaking population because we have a lot of doctors who do speak Tamil, a lot of like nurses and everyone. But for Bengali, unfortunately, it is a bit of a problem. Not too many of us, unfortunately. Yeah, so that, that we are a bit stretched out. Now we are actually like asking members of the community to also come out and volunteer. Yeah. I was wondering for you, 
how has your experience been in communicating with patients now that there's so many more increased barriers in like that's different from your usual patient interaction? That, that's very true as what, what you said. It, 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 it has changed. I mean, um, well, there are a lot of other funny things we do when we actually like interact with patients, like a tap on the shoulder, a pat on the hand and things like that. I mean, that, that helps because it, it makes the patients feel at home. I mean, I remember that one of my patients told me last year, which was an absolute eye-opener, she told me something like this, doctor, I don't want 20 minutes of your time. I just want your best five minutes. And your best five minutes, which is going to make me absolutely comfortable. That's what I want. And that's, that's a really lovely thing they told us. And that, that basically comes up when you actually go into a clinic with a feeling that like, these are people who might be just my friend or my family outside in the street, and I'm going to treat them as such. For the patients in the dormitories, we are basically we're trying to do the basic, take the heart rate, saturations, the temperature. That can be done with devices with minimum amount of hand contact. If they have problems of saturation, then we go into the next stage. We actually get the ED people on board or somebody who specialized to do the rest of the main, sort of like examination. So in, in the dormitory, it's minimal contact, but with an apologetic note, because I, had, I was called down on Friday to speak with some, some of the workers. So I was totally gowned up, face shield, face mask, wearing a gown and everything. So I went down and told them that, hey, sorry guys, I apologize that I'm wearing all these things. They, they did understand. There was a lot of like laughter after that. So, I mean, yeah, we are taking precautions, but we are still trying to remind everybody that, hey, we are on the same page. We're all human beings. We're just taking precautions just to make ourselves safe and yourself safe at the same time. One question which came up, which was actually sort of like being reverberating amongst the other people was, how do I send my money back home? So you realize that they are in dire straits right now, but the first concern is about their families back home. How do I send my money back home? So that was the question, actually. I mean, the, the administration and the NGOs and the dorm supervisors are actually helping them out on that, definitely. But that was their query. They, they, they're not thinking about themselves only. They're thinking about their families. And that shows how valiant they are. They are brave. They're strong. And we have to respect that. And bravery is something which is infectious, as is fear. If you get fearful, people get infected by it, and you then fearful. But when you see bravery, you try to emulate that also at the same time. Yeah. Um, I feel like in my medical education, they're trying to emphasize a lot of like professionalism, um, in which you have to be a professional in your interactions with the patients. And so that means there are some things you should do, and there are some things you cannot do. In one of my patient interactions, in which we had to sign our mini CX, the doctor basically told me like, oh, I think you were too friendly with that patient. Well, when you talk about professionalism, is basically, to me, is basically maintaining absolute, very good standards of medical care. That's one thing. Well, being too friendly or not too friendly, that's a bit of a difficult definition to sort of ascribe to. I mean, being friendly with the patient as long as uh, it's permitted by the patient, he's not getting uncomfortable or he doesn't exactly breach any sort of confidentiality or the patient's respect or anything, I think it's still all right. I give the occasional pat and a tap on the shoulder with my patients as long as they're okay with it. It helps, actually. It makes them more comfortable. So professionalism is something which is basically to make sure that you have maintained absolute standards of healthcare. But when it comes to empathy, it's something you can really, really work on it on your own. 
a lot of different people and can show empathy in a lot of different ways. Mm. I mean, there are angry patients who come in. It's about respecting what the patient wants. You have to listen to them with empathy and you have to like give them your thoughts with empathy and let them decide. That's respect. That's professionalism. If he says no a couple of times, that means he's got something in his mind. Find it out. Speak with him. He's not going to just tell you until and unless he really believes that you are on his side. So those are some things you really have to try. And when you apologize to the patient, best thing is apologize wholeheartedly. They will understand. I had, I had complications myself. I spoke with the patient and the patient said, Dr. Montase, you have done the best for me. Things went wrong. I know. But we're all human beings. So you see, I mean, like, it's, it's basically like we have to reach out to our patients and then things are better. And being friendly is not wrong. It makes your patient more forthcoming. It makes you more trustworthy to the patient. And trust and understanding is more than half the battle. I feel like a lot of my um, education has been focused on, like, how do you protect yourself from litigations? It is important. It's an aspect of medical treatment right now that you have to know what goes wrong and what can happen. Actually, you have to have the legal aspects on also. It is important. But if something goes wrong, it's better to admit it. That sorry, it went wrong. I'm sorry, it went wrong. If you had actually told them about the risk, you can reiterate that this is what I actually said, but I'm sorry, it just went wrong. Is there anything else we can do to make it better? Empathize. I mean, empathize with the patient. Show that you care. It's not only showing about that you care. It has to be that you really care. It has to come from the heart. This is something we lose. We lose part when you're doing our training years to long hours of calls and things like that. We just think about doing our work, getting our surgeries done, getting our logbook done and everything. We forget about the patient. We forget about caring. But one day, it will happen like this, that the patient will actually knock some sense back to you with not harsh words, with loving words. And then you realize that you've got somebody in front of you with enormous amount of wisdom and you should listen to them. I had a few patients, not a few, a lot of patients like that who had actually taught me something different. So maybe aside from um, patients and their kind words and the wisdom reminding you of this humanity, did you have any other ways in which you, you maintained your sense of empathy throughout these many, many long, tough years of training? To be very frank, it nearly slipped off from my mind. We were tired. Sometimes we're frustrated. Sometimes we're resentful. I will admit it was happening. You need good guidance. You need good teachers. You need good mentors. You need people who really care for you, who can actually tell you on the face that, right, you're doing it wrong. Think about it again. So I'm lucky. I had fantastic mentors. So you need them. You need good mentors when you're actually running this medical education. There was one of my teachers who said, there's nothing as a bad teacher. They're always good teachers. They will teach you good things and they will show you bad things. The bad things, you have to have wisdom and idea enough to realize that those are the bad ones which you need to avoid. And you look around in your medical fraternity, I am proud to say that we have got fantastic mentors. They're not a rarity and they will give you a hand. My father came from a village called Kumilla in Bangladesh, actually. It's a sort of a district. Uh, funnily enough, uh, when I was born, when I was three months of age and everything, my father went off to Nigeria and I was there for six months with him. So he was working in a city called Kano, where he was developing uh, the business department in a university over there. So he was the dean over there. So stayed there for six, six years. And after that, only I came back to Bangladesh. Now, funnily enough, when I came back to Bangladesh, I could barely speak Bengali. 
So it was difficult getting used to the same nuances and everything of a city in Dhaka. When the children all speak Bengali, they've got their own games and everything. So I was a bit of like, you know, me and my brother, a bit of an outsider. We took like a couple of years before we could actually adjust back. So by grade 10, when I finished my O-levels and everything, I left. I left Bangladesh. I went for my high school in South Wales. I was there for two years. I went to one of those uh, places called the United World Colleges. I think Singapore is one of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so United World College of the Atlantic is the first United World College in the world. So I was there for two years. It's a fantastic experience. I have got friends. Some of my friends came down to Singapore last year to do a mini reunion. One of them is a geriatrician in Holland. He's, he's one of the frontliners. He had started off on palliative care over there and he's looking after the patients in palliative care who have COVID also. So he's doing his job over there. He's, he's one of my best friends and he's been doing a fantastic job. So that, that's one of them. Then after high school, I went to India. So I studied my medical school over there for six years, made great friends over there. And after I finished, I went down to England for a year to work. And after the problem about the EU and everything, when they weren't exactly giving jobs to like Asian doctors and everything, I decided to come back. So I came back to Bangladesh for about a year, worked there for a year, then applied to Singapore. And then I've been here since then. So you've lived in so many different parts of the world. Absolutely. I'm a bit of a, like a sort of like a, a mixture of, of cultures and everything in the end of the day. Mm-hmm. I think this is rather different from, I would say, like a usual Singaporean medical student's experience. I think most Singaporeans um, were born and bred in the Singapore education system, continue to go to medical school in Singapore. So I feel like there's a, a bit in which like, everyone thinks the same way and does things the same. I was wondering if there were any differences in terms of like patient interaction among all the different countries which you've worked in. So uh, my friend goes to medical school in Manchester in the UK and she told me that on the mini, on, not mini, on the OSCEs, they have a section in which the doctor can say, I feel like you weren't being empathetic enough or your empathy was very well done. And she said, it's quite strange because I feel like in Singapore, whenever we do mini CXs, they say, oh, you missed this out, you missed that out, blah, 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 blah. But then she said, in the UK, sometimes the only thing that the doctor tells them is, I think you, you had very good empathy or you had very good rapport with the patient. So it seems to me there's like some sort of like differences in terms of um, patient interaction. I was wondering if you had that experience also working in three different countries? Yeah. Uh, actually, four altogether. I worked uh, now with Perth, it's possibly four now. But yeah, true. Actually, if you think about the Western standpoint and the Asian standpoint, there are differences. That's one thing we used to talk about when I was in high school because it was an international college. So the main thing was being internationally tolerant or correct doesn't mean that you have to have the Western perspective. Yeah, I, I have very similar thoughts as well. In our second year, we have this thing called communicating with patient module. And uh, they made us show empathy through an acronym. I'm not sure if anyone has told you this before. It's N-U-R-S. So you name the emotion, show understanding, show response and show support. It's just basically like giving you some training sort of training curriculum to bring those sort of like things out into the open. I mean, we don't have to hide it. That's the problem with, with us is from the Asian part of the world that sometimes we have emotions. We don't show it because we're afraid that it may not exactly do the right thing or it might show us to be weak or too overly enthusiastic or something. But if you think about it, some things in medical school, frankly speaking, if they don't exactly seem right the moment, they might seem right later on because there have been very good training exercises to bring the best out of our own self. So I think it's sometimes better to um, just take it for what's happening 
and see what the outcome is afterwards. And sometimes we're all surprised that the outcomes are better than what we actually thought it was because of those exercises we sort of incorporated into our practice. You talked about like the differences um, in, in terms of like Western versus Asian like patients, that Western patients are generally more outspoken. Then how about like the ways in which a doctor practice? Do you feel like there were any practices that you brought from the UK, from India into Singapore that made Singapore's uh, practice of medicine better? Well, I think the thing which happened is both sided. When I went down to Perth and everything, we could actually pass over the way of doing things we do around here to our counterparts in Perth. And we also brought in some new staff, actually, the way they interact and everything. So it is, it's basically, we have enough things in our own basket to provide to the rest of the world. And there are a lot of other things in their basket which they can actually give. And then we can choose the best out of all and then use it in our practice. So it's just something like that. As I said, they are a bit more interactive with their patients. So the thing which basically like what my boss says over there, the first thing, hi, how are you? In his Australian accent. And then he's going to like start saying, hey, I like your makeup and things like that. I'm like, he's going to be like that, actually. I mean, like, and then there's going to be a bit of a banter, a bit of a chat before they come down to the actual topic, which is the hand problem. So he makes them very comfortable and happy even before he has actually started his whole medical conversation. So I think those sort of things we can try. We definitely can try and see what happens. And I mean, like things about how was the day, how's the weather and things like that. What do you think about what's going on right now? What do you think about the virus and stuff? I mean, sometimes we don't have time enough for that, but that, that makes the patient comfortable. Patients do realize that if you do that, that they are going to be listened to. If this doctor can listen to nonsense, what I'm saying, he can also listen to all the important stuff, right? So that's one thing. Thank you, Dr. Munhasa, for joining us today. Is there anything else you would like to share before we end? As, as, as what I said about, like, um, about what we are going through right now, it's a big trial, it's a tribulation. And the only way to go through it is caring with each other, feeling for other people. Do it as a team. We're doing a job together, and I'm sure that we will actually prevail. Even the foreign workers, even though they have to go through all these trials and tribulations, they are also trying to put up a happy face to us. There's a lot of love and caring, actually. But at the same time, we need to remain strong. The post-virus world should be a better place. Mm -hmm.